Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Elizabeth Reese. I'm Marjorie Punnett. And this is Best to the Nest, the podcast that is all about creating strong, comfortable, beautiful nests that prepare us to fly. And Marjorie, before we dig into our discussion today, I just want to make sure that everyone gets a friendly reminder that our Best to the Nest art print created in collaboration with Gina Holiday, the artist behind A Spoonful of Faith, is available for purchase and it's <laughs> fabulous. And I have been product placing mine all over the place. I've been doing these live shots from my kitchen for a brand new show on KSTP called Minnesota Live at 9 a.m. on weekdays. And so uh-huh. I've been um, visiting with them from my kitchen on Wednesday mornings and just showing a recipe and all sorts of stuff. And right. um, so this week I strategically placed my best to the nest print so that it would be in many shots. Oh, that's thought, great. People would see it. And it it really is making me so happy. I framed it in this wonderful, like super inexpensive, cute gold target frame. And I just, it makes, I have it in the kitchen and I thought I would hang it somewhere, but I kind of tucked it underneath the cabinets, like a little piece of art by my backsplash. And I love seeing it so much and it brings me so much joy. And I'm thinking about all of the conversations we've had about this print that we had with Becca from Emerge Mothers Academy and what she wanted to think about us to think about as we looked at the cardinal that is present in the best of the nest art. And, um, and I am really finding it speaking to me. And so I know that it'll do the same for you. So I really encourage you to uh, go to spoonfuloffaith.com and pick one up. It'll make a great holiday gift. You are so ready for QVC. I love but, it. Oh, gosh. But, my dream is to do like Ron Popeil pasta maker infomercials. Someday right. I will achieve the pinnacle but, of my career, well, which you will are be that. On, you are on your way. But but in all seriousness, it was with great intention that we produced this. And I think it is wonderful to have a reminder of why why you want your home to be a place of peace and a place of calm. And that leads us exactly into what we're talking about today, which is Mm -hmm. my obsession, the book, What Happened to You? And I'm calling this What Happened to You Part Two. It is so, there are times when I go through this book that I'm so overwhelmed by thinking about my own childhood and then thinking about how I raised my own children. And gratefully, I think I had a lot of these things in mind But I had them in mind as a reaction in some ways to my own childhood, not really understanding the brain function that happens for children. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what's really interesting about this book. So this is a book written by Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Bruce Perry. And the book is all about changing the paradigm of how we talk about perhaps people that are troubled. Instead of saying, what's wrong with you? Ask the question, what happened to you? And Bruce Perry is really... I think such a significant voice in this 
topic because he's a neuroscientist and a psychiatrist. And so yeah. he connects the physical with the mental. He, you know, the physical creation of a child's brain with the emotional state of what's happening to that child. And that connection is so, so powerful. It's, again, we're, we only made it to chapter three last time, Elizabeth. <laughs> I know, I know. I know because there's just so much to talk about. I think that shift in that question is so important. And I think we should be asking it just so much more regularly. You know, it's interesting because I just, it's, it's making me look at all sorts of interactions with people in such a different way. And you talk about, you know, thinking back to your own childhood and thinking back to the way that you raised your children. And I am having such like a big picture reaction to this book, which I know you are too, but that's what's like really hitting me is looking around my community and looking around at, at people and understanding how the collective trauma and then the big thing that I have has really resonated with me, particularly because I live in Minneapolis and all that we've been through in terms of social unrest and really at the epicenter of understanding just racial injustice and inequality and kind of understanding the systemic problems that have really just put particularly black Americans at a huge disadvantage. And I don't think that that generational trauma is being talked about that much. And that's something that I'm like so fascinated with in this book is the research and the understanding about what that means when you, when your grandfather and grandparents and great grandparents have gone through something, how that continues on through the generations and how it really shifts how your body reacts to things. It's just so fascinating. Well, in terms of the generational piece of that, I wasn't even going to get into that so much today, but that to me was such an incredible part of this book. The idea that our genes well, at one point he says, you know, he hates the expression, or he doesn't say hates. He said the, the expression that children are resilient is wrong. Yes. Thank he you. Said, thank you. Preach to this. And that yes. has been the biggest thing that's been driving me crazy through the COVID pandemic. Yes. Children it, are resilient. Right. He, he says that's hands down wrong. And the example he gives is think of a Nerf ball. So you take a Nerf ball and you can scrunch it up. And when you let it go, it goes back to its original shape. He said that's resilience. He said, children are malleable. Mm. So you can change. They're going to adapt, but they're not going to be the same. And to him, resilient means, oh, something will happen to a child and then they'll be the same. Exactly. And that's ridiculous. They are malleable. They will adapt. But as we've talked about in the last podcast, you know, adaptive behavior as a child so easily becomes maladaptive behavior as an adult. And that's a lot of because of the way that the brain is formed. And that brings us to chapter three, which is we only got through two chapters last time we talked about this. We're the world's slowest book club that doesn't even require you to read the book. It's just unbelievable. We're like, hey, do you want to talk about this in a really slow, drawn out fashion? Listen to our podcast. So we do one, we do one book a year. Yeah, that's it. And the beautiful thing is, guess what, Marjorie? This is our podcast. We can do whatever we want. In every other job we've had, someone else has been saying, hey, we think you should do it this way. In this job. Yes. We think you should cover this book in eight minutes. But no, <laughs> we're going to take 16 hours to cover this book. <laughs> but it's that important. Mm-hmm. But when we go back to this idea, I think you're exactly right, Elizabeth, that idea of generational trauma. And he makes the case that there is 
physical manifestations of generational trauma, that mm-hmm. your genes actually change along the way. And it's funny because he talked about like some people just are like naturally scrappy, mm-hmm. you know, they're, and, and I was thinking about it because I think I'm naturally scrappy. And for sure, I, yeah. I was thinking about that my grandmother, my great grandmother, who was named Marjorie Campbell, was sort of abandoned by her husband. They lived in um, up up in northern Michigan. The family was originally from Canada. Abandoned was dirt poor, but had I think four daughters and I think three sons. I, I'm oh not sure gosh. how many how many men. They had sold off their land to sort of survive. This is the story that's passed down. To so, if any of my cousins are listening, if I get this wrong, please correct me. But basically. <laughs> The sons went off. They were all the sons were all drinkers, but they were lumberjacks, and they would send their money home so that all four of those girls went to college. Wow! So my grandmother was a teacher, um, grew up very poor, was a teacher. All of the women worked. They all married fairly successful men. She changed the course, the trajectory of her family's life through mm-hmm. the daughters. Yeah. And but just scrappy as all get out. I mean, it was just amazing. But but I found it fascinating that that idea of so you can take that positive thing and genetically there he called them I think epi markers that things can change. But as much as that's a positive for my family, the same is true for negative. So when you think about generational trauma, oh my goodness, you know, the Oprah talked about the idea of generational trauma for African Americans. Well, just go back a couple. You don't have to go back very far. You don't go back very far at all. No, you, and fear. it continues. Yeah, yes. and continues exactly. Right. So, but that 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 adults have to become adaptive, and their bodies actually adapt to it in ways that can be very unhealthy. As as in my family, there are things that are also probably you know epi markers that are very unhealthy. But in chapter three, the main part of this chapter is talking about how were you loved, and. Dr. Perry talks about how that's just, and it's like, it seems like almost a cliche question. Like, how were you loved? But in, in this book, the case that he makes is that's everything. Right. And don't we already know that? Like, but we don't live it. Right. We don't live it in a way for our children. And so in the, from the book, it said his experience has been that dysfunction shows up in direct proportion to how you were or were not loved. Did you get what you needed? to thrive. And I think that's the key. And it is stunning to me when he goes through the stories about what happens to a child's brain when those basic needs aren't met or it's inconsistent or chaotic. It it changes that child's worldview for life. Now talk about pressure. Pressure, but then also uh, to me, it sort of relieves some of the pressure Good. of raising kids. And this has been an interesting exercise talking about this book. And I've loved talking with you about what's resonated with us and what's made us feel when we, when we're taking in the information from this book, what makes us feel hopeless and what makes us <laughs> feel hopeful? Because right. it is, it's a roller coaster ride when you are consuming this content. When it comes to our home, there have certainly been chaotic moments. And there are moments when it hasn't, I've been like, boy, that probably wasn't great. Or that interaction between me and Jay wasn't great. Or that like how I reacted to my child was not great. I mean, that's just the truth of parenting. But I do 
feel a lot of hope when I hear that love is the glue and that feeling like you were loved is the most important thing. I think back to Bernie every year at her preschool and then all the kids do this. They fill out this thing on Mother's Day that, you know, it says like my mom is blah, blah, blah. My mom's favorite food is whatever, you know, like they do that on Father's Day too. And I remember like Franklin wrote, what is my dad good at? And he, and it was, my dad is good at golf and teaching other people to play golf. <laughs> like that's, you know, they like, and then it was, what are, what does your dad like to drink? And I think he said beer and coffee, you know, like, and I was, and Jay was like, this is right on. This is terrific. You know, all these right things on. that are, um, that they observe about you. Right. And I remember a moment, um, reading Bernie's and she said, it was something like, my mom always says dot, dot, dot. And then she, then the teacher asks, what does your mom always say? And she said, I love you. And oh. so she wrote down, I love you for what I always say. And I do think that in our house, the words I love you are used constantly. I mean, right. all the time. Like, I love you so much. I love you. I tell them I love you more than the sun and the moon and the stars. And they repeat that to me. It is, I mean, Jay never leaves them without saying, I love you. And when he sees them, he says, I love you. It's very much part of our family. And it was funny because we were talking with some of our neighbors and friends like a couple of months ago. And one, one of our friends was saying, my parents never said, I love you. I never heard. And he's like the most loving parent. He's like such a loving person. He's just like a loving person in general. And then that adds into his family life too. And I was like, really? Like, I can't believe that you're like this when your parents never said, I love, you know, really. And he was like, oh, it was really part of, I think our family's culture. Like they just culturally, we, where my parents came from, we were never, we never said, they never said, I love you. I could never hear the words. I love you. And you could see that that's like a little bit painful. And, right, right. and so I don't know the, I think that 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 simple gesture of taking a couple of seconds to look right at your child and say, I love you just for who you are. I just love you is, I mean, I think that can help overcome a lot. Well, it can. And I think what we're talking about is, hey, did you hear my Chicago accent there? I just heard it. I can. (laughs) Um, It's like as I get older, it's creeping back out. It's really interesting. Maybe it's because we're talking about generational things and it's coming back out the many years of family in Chicago. (laughs) But I think what's important in that is, yes, love can – it really is the glue. And he makes that point over and over again and tells a couple of stories about sort of a compare and contrast of some kids that were really in trouble. Mm-hmm. And he talked about one boy who they were they were in a group home for the same reason. They were showing a lot of behavioral difficulties. And one kid was almost unreachable. And the other, who was also showing some signs of distress – the doctor could tell that there was still a there there that he could get to. Yeah. And so when he looked at it, he said the difference between the two was the the one child, we'll call him child A, mm-hmm. had gotten imperfect love as a young child, but had lots of family members that were trying to pitch in and help. Dad, when the child was young, hadn't been abusive. That came later. But sort of the first couple of years – there was a lot of love around the house amidst the chaos. I mean, and this is dysfunctional chaos, not just right. like, oh, too busy working parents chaos. Right. This yeah. is dysfunctional chaos. Mm-hmm. Child B hadn't gotten any of that as a young child mm-hmm. and had become disassociative. He just clicked out of the world. And 
it was very hard to reach him because he had already set his worldview that people are not good. People are not here to help me. People are going to hurt me. Right. That was his worldview. Whereas the other kid, even though his life had gotten very confusing and he was acting out because of it, his initial worldview was, I am loved. But I think the important thing, too, in all of that is, again, this goes back to the patterns that you set with your very, you know, with your infants, basically, is that love, saying I love you is super important. I agree with that. And I think it's necessary. The difficulty comes in abusive households is even if they say I love you, right? but then I love you, it turns into I love you, I hate you. you know, right. It's this abusive, no, that's true. Or showing behavior. you. Yeah, I, or or a definition of love that isn't truly love, right? right? So it's like I'm doing this because I love you. I mean that is like so yeah, there's a lot up, of pardon my French. You know, I mean that's like the most yeah. messed up thing that you could like I'm hurting you because I love you. Because I mean that's I love just, you. So that not then that's like giving such a which is what a lot of I mean, let's be real, even in not super dysfunctional households, like if you were physically punished I'm doing this because I love you or, or like, you know, that's, that is still the message that you were getting. It's right. very bizarre. And I think now we're finally at this point where like people think spanking is totally, at least in where in my community, like not appropriate. Right. But I, it, I think, yeah, but it was appropriate when I was a kid, you know, and that's not that far. You no, know, no. Removed. But I think to the, to the point of your neighbor who, his parents never said, I love you. I think as I was reading this chapter and then subsequent chapters, I think what's really important is understanding of really going back and digging into what was good about your childhood and what was bad about your childhood. Mm -hmm. And this requires, I think, a level of self-awareness. And I think you and I are probably pretty porous to this book because we've both had therapy and so we're willing to go where the book will take us in terms of like, okay, I can think about that. It's not going to – I'm not going to crumble thinking about it. I'm not going to – whether it's thinking about how I raise my children or how I'm going to raise my children or thinking about my own childhood. And I think if you can open yourself up to the book and really look at what was good and what was bad about your own childhood and your partner's childhood – and I think I did this in a way – and I don't know why I was able to do this – but I was very clear about how I wanted to raise my children differently than I was raised. Yeah. And and I think that what was helpful is I think my husband was kind of in the same place. And so we came to child rearing with some pretty specific intention of how our children would feel in the world and how we wanted to make them feel in the world. And so as I was reading the book, I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, I got married so young. I'm so lucky. And it's just lucky because I didn't know my husband that well. <laughs> I'm just so lucky that those things matched up for us and that I understood his childhood traumas and he understood mine. And we could, instead of having a family that was sort of a, a, a subliminal reaction to that, that we could really talk through it and just with intention make our families different. Yeah. And I, I just think that's a really important thing for anybody who's in a relationship with somebody is to have the conversation. Like think about Elizabeth. And I think you did this with Jay. What, what was your childhood like? 
right? You know, yeah. what, what were the traumas in your life? Because that will have an effect on your family going forward. No, it totally does, which brings us to chapter four, which is talking about trauma. You know, and I think all credit too to people who, if you're looking at your own childhood trauma and you had a lot of trauma, you know, I think for me, I would like to, it's easier for me to go, oh, I'm going to look back at my childhood and the things that were difficult because I just frankly did not have a traumatic childhood. You know, right. I mean, there were obviously things that my parents did wrong, but like I Everybody did not grow does, up yeah. in a home with any sort of abuse or addiction. So right, right there, right there, you are leaps and bounds ahead of anybody who has struggled with those things, regardless of your race or your poverty level. I mean, I remember money being really tight. I remember my dad having a lot of frustrations with his job. I remember all those types of things. Right. That being said, there was no abuse or addiction. And so that's right, that right there, like just makes it a lot easier to look back at your childhood trauma. If you're not looking at those things. And right. so, or sexual um, abuse or any of those yes, bigger, any issues, of those I mean, big things that yeah. are just absolutely huge. And, and this is really shocking. I mean, when they get to this point in the book and they talk about, and I love that you, you highlighted this, that 50% of children in the United States have had at least one traumatic event. And I also do love how in this book, they break down that, that an event can happen and be traumatic for some people who experience the event and not traumatic for others. And that's where it gets so tricky because you can look at, he gives this example of a fire starting in a school and he gives the example of like the fire starts in a classroom, like very close to a first grade classroom. So the fireman who comes to put out the fire that fire is not traumatic for the firefighter because right. they're older. They have this collection of of events, understanding that they go to fires all the time. So they smell the smoke. They see the flames. They hear the alarms. This is the fire. Their body is not having this like massive fight or flight response. A fifth grader who's been through a little bit more and is on the other side of the school and so is just asked to leave the school without seeing flames or hearing smoke it's not a traumatic event either. Maybe no. something they talk about later and they say, oh, mom, look what happened. But that wouldn't right. be considered trauma. But for the first grader where they saw the smoke, saw the flames and had to be rushed out in fear and also the fact that they're younger and they don't, they've never experienced a fire alarm in school before, that could manifest itself as trauma where it's every time they smell smoke, they have a fear response because they experienced that event, which all those other people experienced as well as trauma. And that was one thing that I thought was like so fascinating because it makes it so hard to pin down, okay, this happens. How do we heal everybody? Because for some people it's traumatic and for some people it's not. Well, and if you take that sort of into a smaller world of events that happen within a family, if there are four or five or six kids one family event is going to be perceived differently by every child in that family, depending Mm -hmm. on the age, depending on the relationships with the parents, depending on so many variables. And then I think the other thing too, to consider as you're raising your own children is, you know, we talk about, we've been talking about dysfunction within a family and, you know, what's happening in our nest. I think when we look at that statistic, 50% of children in the United States have have had at least one traumatic event. Many times that traumatic event is happening outside of the home. Mm-hmm. Is it bullying in school? Is it, you know, you name it. There are all sorts of things that can happen to your children that may seem like, oh, that shouldn't be traumatic. But the way that it altered 
that child for that moment, you know, children are malleable. A traumatic event will change them. How will they adapt going forward? Now, they talk about, and we, I don't ever want to make light of this idea of trauma. I mean, he, the amount of cases he goes through, and I think they do this really well in the book, they nuance sort of different traumas. They don't even talk about it in degrees of trauma. They just call them different traumas. Mm -hmm. So in one case, he's talking to a three-year-old boy who was present when his sister was abducted and then murdered. Yeah. Okay. Trauma. But then they can, then there's the same, then there's another example, like you said, of the trauma that a child might feel having witnessed a fire at their school. Right. So, but I think all of this goes to show and where it makes me hyper aware is this idea of paying attention to it with your children, paying attention to it, no matter what it is that it does. If it's your child, it's your job to pay attention to that trauma, whatever that is, Mm -hmm. and to not dismiss it. And I think that that's the really important thing too, is just to not dis- not that you know parents are running around dismissing it, but how many times we you know do kids come home and they're like, oh my god, this kid is picking on me at school. Yeah. I think we're hyper aware of bullying now, but when I was growing up, you wouldn't even think to talk to your parents about that. I know it's interesting because I just checked. I, I it's funny that we're having this conversation. I literally just sent an email to Bernie's teacher today about interactions that she's been having with another kid at school. And I thought, I thought, I I just kind of had a couple, like, I was waiting for my gut to tell me, like, this is the right thing to do. But she said a couple things, and then she said a couple things to our nanny, and then our nanny brought it up to me, and I was like, okay, it's time that I need to say something. She's talking about it. She's talking about it, and, and what was funny is my first thought was, and this is very separate from the book, but that this is another little boy who seems to be, um... just, it's just an issue that's been going on. And my first thought was, I don't want anyone to say to her, oh, he's doing that because he likes her. Like that was like the number one, which this is obviously off topic from this book. No, no, no. But it's, it's but it did kind of remind me of, you know, when I was a kid, as she's describing what she's experiencing with this classmate, I was thinking, I just was like being brought back to my own childhood. And that is what we heard as kids and particularly as girls. Oh, he's mean to you. Oh gosh, he's teasing you. He's throwing stuff at you. He must really like you. you. And and how freaking screwed up is that Marjorie Punnett? I just said this to Jay before I was walking up to have this conversation with you. I was like, this is the main thing. And we we were on the same page about just sending a message and kind of saying, we got to figure out what's going on here. But I said, this is what I do not want someone to say to her or for her to think because that frames your entire worldview of interactions with the opposite sex. If you're in a, if, if you are a heterosexual person, you think like, oh, if he's mean to me, he likes you. And I actually said that to our nanny and I was like, this is what I don't want anyone to say to her. And she was like, I never even thought of how terrible that is. But that's what I heard too. And she's 20. You know, you think about like, this is really the shift that has to be happening. And, and you're right, listening to your child. And when she's talking about it and hearing her and saying, how can I help? What do you think? How about I send a message? How about I, how about I just check in and say, what can we do to, to navigate this for you and being your advocate? But you, that's it right there. And I stepped on you saying, and it was the most important thing. I'm so sorry. No. You said, I am your advocate. Is That takes an event 
we don't know what's going on in your daughter's mind about how this is living. Is it traumatic? It's something because she's talking about it. Mm -hmm. But how beautiful it is that she feels like I'm going to say something because here's the pattern that's been set up in your household. I'm going to say something because I know if I have a problem or I have a need, it's going to be met. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what she's doing. So it very much relates to this book because that's the whole point is he talks about – the doctor talks about how it's so important for our young children that when they express a need, that their needs get get met consistently. So here she is talking to the people that she trusts, the nanny, her mother, her father. I'm uncomfortable with something that's happening to me. Can you help me? Mm -hmm. And she may not say it that way, but that's what she's asking for. And for that little boy, quite frankly, there probably is truth to the idea that he's acting out because he likes her and he doesn't know how to talk about it. So let's say that that's true. Let's say that that's why whatever's happening is happening. Well, isn't it time that generationally we kind of sit down that little boy and teach him a different way to express himself? Right. Exactly. You're so, you're totally right. And that, you're right. And then it helps both of them. It helps mm-hmm. both of them. It helps him understand his behavior in a more mature way, which I think a five and a six-year-old and a seven-year-old boy and girl, they are at the point where they can understand their own behavior and modify it to be appropriate. So why aren't we having it, the conversation that way? And I think to me, when people used to say, I mean, there was, I remember the same thing happened to me when I was a little girl. There was a kid that used to pull my hair. Yeah. And that was the same thing. Oh, he just likes you. Ugh. Wouldn't it have been better if we, if, if an adult had intervened and actually explained to us how to behave appropriately? Mm-hmm. For me, I just shut down and it made me really nervous to go to school. Oh, Marjorie. But I ended up dating him in eighth grade. So it's not like a crisis. <laughs> yeah. But still, if it makes, it, if it's making you nervous to go to school, I yes. mean, that does, that it's does nothing. frame some things about how you look at the world. And you know, what's interesting about reading this book has made me have, when you have kids and you think if anyone is ever mean to them, I am going to go and take that kid and I'm going to annihilate that kid. And I'm going to say, I mean, I get real like real mama bear and like Jay gets like that too. We both get like real mama bear, papa bear. Yeah. But it has made me reading this book has, I haven't read it guys. I'm listening to it on audible. Don't judge me. I like the storytelling atmosphere anyway, but having this book being consumed is helping me to actually have more empathy for the other kid. And this is what was interesting about it is that I don't know if I would have felt as like, okay, I need to like reach out and start this conversation about what's going on here because I do feel equally. I mean, number one, I don't like that my child is coming home feeling this way and I, and I want to remedy this situation, but I have equal compassion for the other kid. And how beautiful that was such an interesting shift that I don't think I would have had, had I not read this book because I have been thinking, well, something, what's going on with him? Like what's happening with him or what What? has happened with him instead of like this kid is a jerk who needs to be dismissed and needs to be punished right. for him being mean to my daughter. It's what's going on here. And that is that is just a completely different way to look at these types of interactions, which has made me realize that this book has really impacted me. I, I just like I honestly cannot thank you enough for recommending it. And you were really firm, firm, firm <laughs> saying you need to firm. read this. And it was totally the right call. Well, I think too, when you look at that, 
we've heard this expression so many times and sometimes people react to it, but it takes a village. It takes a village. It sort of became a political statement, which it should not have been because it's just a beautiful sentiment that it yes. takes a village to raise a child. And when you look at that expression, what you just talked about is what that expression really means, mm-hmm. is that your daughter's going through something, but what? how can we help that little boy too? He's still just a six-year-old boy. Right. How can we help him too? How can we not be the person that goes and says to the teacher, you need to punish him? Do we need to punish him? Do we need to teach him? Mm -hmm. Do we need to hold his hand? Do we need to help him? He's not your child, but he's in your village. Exactly. And I think that that's a really, that's a great, I love that that's what you're getting out of this because I think that's the important thing that we look at around us with compassion and make our worlds better, not just the nest better. So it's a, it's a, you know what chapter we're on, Elizabeth? Yeah, we got through two chapters um, in discussion today. And so we're going to need to do a part three. So please cancel whatever you had planned for next week because we'll just, we'll just uh, finish up the conversation and have more, more conversation about it because I definitely want to talk about like the emotional, how emotions are contagious and then getting to the point from coping to healing. That's going to be the next conversation. But I, we're at a time, Marjorie. I don't know what to tell you. I know where we're at. <laughs> I just, I think, I think we're onto something with a book club that does one book a year. Yeah. It feels I great. Think that's, I think that's the right way to go with, at least for us. That's the Who's right on board, go. everybody? Get on board. <laughs> oh, I love these conversations. And you know what's so funny is like I work out. I don't even realize that this stuff is impacting me until we have these conversations on Best to the Nest. And there was nothing in me that was planning on sharing that email that I just sent right yeah. before I came to record with you. But But it's fascinating how when you're on this sort of path of – this is your focus and you're thinking about your home and you're thinking about your nest and you're thinking about the dynamic that it becomes like an instinctual shift in how you're handling things I love that. versus always having to sort of push and pull and fight against. I don't know. And I'm going to go back to that best to the nest art print because I really do think if you're part of this community and you're part of these conversations that you are thinking about these things regularly. And I just can't tell you how much Having Gina's art in my home over just like the last couple of weeks has helped me to just kind of find that, hey, that just little reminder every day where I am when I'm seeing it, that this is this is a big part of the fabric of our family and about our home's values. And and I just really value everything about this community. Even when you guys that. send me emails that you disagree with me, whatevs, I'm here for it. I'll take it. I love that. I love that. That's a beautiful, beautiful thought. It's good stuff. If you're enjoying this podcast, like we are, please subscribe (laughs) wherever you get your podcasts and give us a review at Apple Podcasts. Even honestly, even if no one listened, I would still do these conversations. We'd still record it for ourselves. (laughs) Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Best of the Nest or go to bestofthenest.com to subscribe to our newsletter that we're going to get probably going in 2022. Took us three years to start the podcast from the beginning of the idea. That's right. The same way with the newsletter. That's right. We are the podcast that brings you home. Any workout, any mood, any time. That's what the Peloton Tread is all about. From interval runs that motivate you to go the extra mile, power walks that work up a sweat, rolling hill hikes for you to enjoy, and full body boot camps to hit your goals. 
plus thousands of workouts that go beyond the tread. Strength programs, core classes, yoga, Pilates, and even boxing. Everything you need on and off the Peloton tread. Experience it all for yourself with a 30-day home trial. Learn more at OnePeloton.com. Hola, soy Andrés Cantor y los invito a ver la Copa Mundial de la FIFA. Vive cada jugada y emocionate con nosotros porque el Mundial lo es todo. Del 20 de noviembre al 18 de diciembre en español por Telemundo y Peacock.